Welcome, welcome, bienvenue to Down the Line, an episode-by-episode episode review of the best TV drama series ever made, Secret Army. Hello, I'm Andy, and I nearly always take my silky dressing gown to the south of France. And I'm AJ, and I need to know if the stray cats are house trains. Have they got their vaccination certificates? What's happening with the cats? <laughs> All important questions. <laughs> Hello. Hello, you. Barely recognise you. I know, it's been a while. Listeners won't know this, but uh, we had busy lives and we had to take a break from recording episodes for three or four weeks. So our long period of separation is over. We are reunited. Yes, we are embracing over the Skype call. We have had a busy few weeks, haven't we? Because since we last recorded, one of us has delivered an international conference... One of us accidentally ripped their own arm out of its socket again and now requires Ow. a second shoulder surgery. One of us has interviewed several Secret Army cast members and one of us has travelled to New Zealand and back again. Oh. And it's a wonder we even have time to talk to each other today. <laughs> it really is. I just feel tired just hearing all that. Yeah, no, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so in our introductory episode, when we were asking questions like, oh, which character do you like? You know, what episode do you prefer? And you asked me, what's the worst episode of Secret Army? And this was the one I named. <laughs> but as we also said in the introductory episode, you felt strongly that Secret Army begins at episode five. Five. I do believe this. This is something I will, I will die on that hill. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on episode four. <laughs> we're on episode four. So let's get over this hump and then we're cracking on with great Secret Army episodes. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I'd, I'd built up how bad this was that Ryan, when he watched it, he was like, I was expecting it to be so much worse than that. <laughs> it's like, it's okay, really. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, yeah. yeah. I think it depends mm. what you are looking for or enjoying a Secret Army episode. If you're looking for scenes with your favourite characters who are not in this episode, it's always going to be a, <laughs> a tougher watch. It's worth just pointing out before we get into this episode that... This is not the episode with the child. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> I was with my ex-wife yesterday and we were gardening and I was saying I was recording this today and she was saying, oh, that's the one with the kid in the M. And I'm like, no, it should be. <laughs> but it's not. It's the one with it's the one with grumpy Ian McCulloch. And she's like, oh, that one. <laughs> and as we said in the introductory episode... Mm. We established, didn't we, that that's how you test whether someone's a true fan of Secret Army is. <laughs> yes, are you a true fan? And I'm afraid not? she she didn't pass the test, so <laughs> she didn't, which is sad for her. <laughs> Will she listen to this? Do you think? <laughs> oh, I think so. You know, at, at gunpoint in a sort of Secret Army clandestine back room of the Condine sort of a way. Yes. <laughs> Does she have a connection to the show, having done lots of like filming location scouting with you and things like that? Oh, yeah. And she, she met Angie and Julia and Clifford and Terence. So, yeah. Oh, totally. And, of course, she did the theatre evening with me. So, uh, yes, yeah. Oh, of course. massively. Yes. And she's still very affectionate about the show and understands why we would do a podcast even. Gosh. Just wanted to add that context in so people know I'm not, I'm not hating. <laughs> hating on your ex-wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly 
You're so horrible. I know, I savage. I'm savage. <laughs> you are. Right, enough of this. We should move <laughs> Enough forward. of this nonsense. <laughs> yes, to a brief plot summary. Over to AJ. A suppressed magazine article by an American airman who was helped by the evasion line has been found by German agents working in the USA and has now reached Brandt. He thinks that this probably contains useful intelligence and visits the Pyrenees. With the help of Malot, a French gendarme, they identify potential escape routes. Meanwhile, Lisa is also in the same area and comes close to being captured. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? <laughs> That's a good setup, surely, for an episode of Secret Army. It sounds like an episode that will have far-reaching consequences into future episodes. <laughs> Yeah, it's like um, like when they say about in EastEnders or something. This after this episode, the square will never be the same again. Which no, it's not that. I would say episode nine of the first series is that actually too near home. Surprised oh how much that is. yeah, that makes yeah. that stirs the stirs the heart just thinking about it. Does it? Oh bless. <laughs> so the most astonishing thing about this episode, probably the most astonishing thing of a. T- of all, that is sounded, who directed it. Sorry, that sounded really sarcastic and it wasn't. It genuinely... I always sound sarcastic when I'm being serious. It genuinely does stir <laughs> the heart, that episode. I think of it and I'm like, oh, oh. But yes, Good. sorry. Please carry on talking about the director. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, just the most astonishing thing, isn't it? That this was directed by Vic Vitalis. I'm sorry, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> You're refusing to believe this, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> I was so shocked. So I did a rewatch when you were in New Zealand and I messaged you. No context, you know, not a hello, not a how's New Zealand, how was the flight, just a Charles play was directed by Vic Ritellis. <laughs> I understood your your amusement, your shock. Yeah, there's not there's no close ups of an animal, which is an essential. There uh <laughs> I think the closest we get is when when Brandt is doing very good train jostling acting, and there's a train that's cross faded with his his visage. Yes. Um, other than that, I can't really think of anything. Can you? I, I, no. There's some nice shots in there. Like there's one, isn't there, that goes from like above ground down to where Lisa's hiding in the tunnel. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is and nice. Yeah, and there's terrible stock footage, which he was always using stock footage. Oh, there's a mo- okay. there's a bit of mountains, so having just watched the Lotus Eaters, he can put so much stock footage in there, which just just doesn't fit. So yeah, the mountains were just too filmic and didn't fit the feel. But so that's kind of a signature. Mm. And I just kind of want to add a quick note um, for the more casual listener of this podcast. <laughs> so um, if you remember in the Sergeant on the Run episodes, we were talking a lot about the he's a Eccentric directing style. <laughs> yeah. Flies on flypaper, close up of people eating, yeah. ticking clocks. There was a lot of Vic Rotellis yeah. in that episode. So that's why we are shocked that this is directed by the same man, because there is less of that in this one. Absolutely. That's good that you, you're helping the listeners along who don't know what the heck we're talking about. Surely everyone knows who Vic Rotellis is. No. I just, having edited a few of our episodes now, I just I'm worried that we're talking as if everyone knows all of this information and they might not. So. That's very good of you. Yes. So let's always explain it. We might help make more sense of it for ourselves. That's true. <laughs> so my theory is episode two, Sergeant on the Run. I think it went massively over budget, really too long in the filming locations, because just so much 
was included in that, and I think Vic Vitalis was had his had his hand smacked when he got back to the TV centre, and Jerry Glazer said, "I like you, I like your work, but I'm sorry, you can't work on any more unless you know you actually stick more to the script. You're not making films here; you're making a TV series. So that's my theory, and that's why it's, this one has the least of any because I think he's just had his telling off. That's my theory, but." When he goes on to do other ones, then he starts to gradually bring those elements back in. And when you spoke to him, did you did you phrase questions like like that to him? <laughs> no, because because I'd completely forgotten that Child's Play was directed by him, so I don't think I even mentioned Child's Play <laughs> to him because it just didn't seem like his episode. Yeah. And uh, who wrote this episode, Andy? Well, this was the venerable. Don't know why he's venerable. Suddenly felt right. Arden Winch who was well known for writing series around wartime and military and spy-based stuff at the time. And yes, he wrote this episode. I think it's his only episode of Secret Army. I think. Yeah. But he was also very busy at the same time on seven episodes of the historical RAF drama um, Wings, which I've never watched and when I looked at the cast list, it was all, it was just a sausage fest. So I don't think I will watch it. I think, you know, there's not enough women in it to pique my interest. And that leads us on to Cold It. Tell us about his contribution to Cold It. Oh, well, it wasn't his contribution to Cold It that I was going to have a oh, right, rant okay. about. It was his contribution to Blood Money that I have beef with. Okay. My beef with Arden Winch and Blood Money. <laughs> so, which listeners may know is, um, I think, from 1981. Uh, might know it as a bit of a, a cast reunion. It's got Bernard Hepton, Juliet Hammond, uh, Stephen Yardley in. It's that when you watch it, so it's six episodes of 30 minutes, yes. So that's three hours of programming, and there's less than five minutes of screen time with a woman talking to another woman. So that is my beef with Arden Winch. Doesn't know women exist, apparently. <laughs> well, yeah, but he contributed to Colditz as well. And in in the in the notes we make for the episode beforehand, it's you saying about you know lack of screen time of women talking to another woman. That was my big problem with Colditz. So that's why I assumed that's why you meant Colditz because Colditz has barely any women in it at all. In fact, I'd be surprised if it ever passed the Bechdel test at all. So I couldn't cope with it. I agree, and I can. I'm not as angry about that because it is. Mostly an all male setting. <laughs> I know it has some scenes where it goes back to the yeah back to the women, but Blood Money you're not limited by that. It's it's not an all male yeah exactly you know it's not yeah. so there's Fair. there's no excuse yeah. there's no excuse. Yeah. So I'm just I'm never gonna forgive him for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching it. I've watched it through twice now, and the second time I was like. <laughs> we're on episode five and a woman has not spoken to another woman yet it's not okay so i also should mention that arden winch wrote the last and best episode of moonbase three which was called view of a dead planet in which the earth looks like it's been destroyed and they're all on the moon base looking oh shit we're on the moon the earth's just been destroyed we're absolutely effed. We're now stuck on the moon forever and we've got no supplies and food left. And it's brilliant. It's really exciting. The only exciting episode of Moonbase 3, I should say. Um, so I was surprised that he wrote that because it's, again, very different to Child's Play. Gosh. Mm. But I just thought it was worth mentioning seeing. So I podcasted about that not too long ago on a UK TV drama pod. Quick plug. <laughs> Do you want to mention filming locations, which was not France? Okay, yeah. So 
I assumed that the filming locations for Child's Play were Peterborough, because they always are, but in fact they were Kent. Although the only person who told me this, I think, was Ian McCulloch. And I don't know whether he was right. Let's say maybe he was, but um, that was his opinion that it was filmed in Kent. But I didn't... The really sad thing about Superdome, it's worth just mentioning this, is that when I went to look at the production files at the BBC Written Archive Centre, there were only three... I think three files in total. And they were kind of generic files. I don't think they were for individual episodes. Just the amount of stuff that was chucked away just is horrifying. And yeah, I had to piece a lot of the book together from interview testimony rather than from anything in the written archives. And yeah, it's just so sad that you can't just find out simple things like where key locations were. But um, yeah, obviously... Obviously, Brussels is easier than anywhere else, but still. Yeah, and I've um, noticed this as well. I've spoken to a few different people who've been in Secret Army episodes now, and they just, understandably, after 30, 40 years, just don't remember. So you're like, oh, you went to France. Which you know, which part of France did you film in? What what town? No memory. So it is really hard to work out where things things were filmed. And I have to say, I do try not to, but I do judge them for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I can't remember what I did yesterday. <laughs> I'm not serious. It's just it's just me as a fan wanting to know everything yeah, there yeah. is to know. Surely there's a 1977 diary that you kept. Surely, surely. No. Anyway. It definitely brought it home to me how you can be so passionate about something that is such a small part of someone else's life. And then when you speak to them oh, about okay. it, you're like, and then what about when you first went on to set? And they're like, oh, I don't remember any of that. Yeah, my, my worst experience of this ever was when I was doing the DVD release of Wish Me Luck and I was researching series one and I was so excited about the series and I particularly loved the character played by Susanna Hamilton who was also in 1984 and Swords and Amazons and various other things. And she is so brilliant in Wish Me Luck. I really love her. Oh, yeah. She's great. Oh, so do I. She's kind of like a proto-ace in yes. that, I really yeah, feel. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt that as well. Um, proper cockney gutsy girl who comes comes through but um i sent her this massive list of questions really detailed and i just got this email back from her saying andy you're lovely but i can't answer any of these questions because i have no memory of any of the things you're talking about but good luck (laughs) (laughs) and it was just really sort of like a good reminder that yeah as you just said that it's just a part of her life back then but she could never get into the ridiculous fanish detail that I wanted. And I always think it's interesting like if you got asked those kinds of questions for for your own profession or job it would just sound insane wouldn't it like oh what was it like to work with you know Bob Smith and you'd be like oh I just worked with him for like two weeks when I was temping (laughs) as an admin assistant at this company and you just you wouldn't you know you you wouldn't remember or you wouldn't yeah. you don't know them as individuals you just work together on a job you know that kind of thing and or you might remember things that were inadmissible or that you didn't want to talk about you know I mean, you might think oh well he actually didn't wear enough deodorant <laughs> or <laughs> like on survivors or secret army when the cast members told me things and then they were like oh but you can't put that in the book and i'm like yeah I probably can't and just various things where they, they the things they remembered I couldn't include because I didn't want it to be a sort of a racy read that was more interested in the behind the scenes. And sometimes other things come to light as well. I know um, since then, like some of the actors have, or one of the actors has been more open about like drinking problems and things. And then yeah, yeah, I think we can openly say that Carolyn Seymour, yeah, has yeah, she's she's now out about that stuff. 
which is not, you know, you're not looking to expose anything or anyone, are you? You're just there to talk about the shows. No, exactly. And when we reach um, the episodes, which feature the people that I've spoken to, we'll start releasing these interviews as well that I just keep talking about constantly in this episode. So there's loads of, we said that there would be treats to look forward to. We can't wait to release them when the time comes. Indeed. So. Anyway, we digress again. We do. When was this first broadcast? This was first broadcast on the 28th of September, 1977. This was recorded only well, just less than a month ahead. That was quite close, five weeks between this being recorded and broadcast. Yeah, I was really shocked because I've noticed that with other episodes as well. And I was really shocked how close it is. Like, I don't know whether that... Is they've just got a, a system in place for quick turnarounds or there's some really, really sleepless editors just frantically trying to cut the show together. So I think I'd said before that Child's Play was brought forward from later in the run, but it wasn't brought forward from as far as I thought. So they had um, Second Chance and Growing Up that were recorded before this, but it was after Growing Up, the actual Child and Airman episode, that this was recorded. So it was recorded seventh in series one. Yeah. So there you go. Tell me your thoughts on this episode. We've already um, given away to the listener that we might think this is one of the worst of the series, but... Yeah, I think it's one of the serious contenders for that that crown. The other is also in series one. And there's another one in series two, which I really can't abide, but... but oh, wait, n- name, name. Do you want the name now? Prisoner of War. It's the penultimate episode of series two. Yeah. Oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. And what was your other one in series one? Hymn to Freedom. But I think this just doesn't have anything in it. Both of those episodes have elements in them that are exciting key moments. One involves Kessler in Hymn to Freedom and a brilliant speech. And then in Prisoner of War, a main character dies. <gasps> Spoilers. So, yeah, so they have elements that are important. But this, honestly, yeah, it kind of passes me by. And it's very exposition heavy. It thinks it's much cleverer than it is. But it's it's not bad. It's just not good when you compare it to other episodes in the series and around it. Yeah, and I think it is potentially more rewarding for when you've watched the whole series to go back and rewatch it. Yeah. Whereas if you're watching it in the first run, again, the problems that we've touched upon in other episodes, you know, which are you don't know who the main characters are yet, you're not it's not helpful in that you're introducing even more characters, you're then away from the Candide again. Yeah. It doesn't have Natalie in again. I know. What's that about? <laughs> Let's sort that one out. Strongly worded Mimo to Gerard Glaser. <laughs> I know it's not said Mimo, by the way. I say Mimo because because the governor of, of Prisoner Cell Block H said um, Mimo quite a lot. <laughs> it always amused me. There we go. Yeah, it's the big problem as well is it, there's so much dialogue which is describing stuff. It's very much this thing where you're screaming at it, show, don't tell. You know, we're, we're reading all the, all the perfect example, the newspaper article, which is a nice idea. But if as I mean, perfect for Victor's retellers, if he had more time and maybe he was thinking, oh, I want to do this. And he was denied that, you know, when they're reading out, oh, and I was woken at the morning by the pigs at the window. And if he could have cross faded that with the actual experiences of the airmen in, you know, going down the line, I think that would have been really fun. And you would have seen the. You'd have seen the farmhouse. You'd have seen the things that you see later in the episode. But it's just all flat. I feel like you've tapped into his brain there. Yes. I can see that now you've said it. Yeah. But it's all flat delivery, isn't it? I've just... And then they did this. And and Brandt, Michael Culver, does his best to to bring some energy into it. 
But I also feel that I feel that rehearsal time might have been quite short or they struggled. Because there's a few times where they stumble over their lines, Michael Culver and Ian McCulloch. And I think, oh, they were struggling here. Doing my minute count, because I always like to do that. We're 28, 29 minutes in and they're still sat around a table reading the article. I'm like, come on. <laughs> come on, do something. <laughs> Just leave his hotel room. And yeah, yeah, like you say, not enough action. So it felt like a very slow episode. So much talking. I think my problem was more in like the wider context in that it seems to end like in a really interesting place for Lisa's character in that you're like, oh my gosh, what are the consequences going to be? You know, these she's had to give these airmen up to save herself in the line. And then it, there's no, it's never mentioned again, is it? No. And there are no consequences. Yeah, there's no consequences. And that would have been a really interesting thing to explore because it, Lisa must then be... Like, I would never stop thinking about that. I'd be like, oh, where are they now? You know, who's got them now? Yeah. Have they spoken? Have they been interrogated? or You know, I'd be like so panicked all the time. And then to, to never revisit that is such a shame. Yeah. And the weirdest thing is how Michael Culver suddenly disappears from the action for the last 10 minutes. He's out there on location. He doesn't get any lines on location. He's not in at the kill, as it were. He he doesn't get to be in the studio again after he's been in the studio in his hotel room. It's so odd as a decision. And I think, was Michael Culver ill? Did it have to be rewritten? Why didn't he get lines on location? It's so strange how Brandt just fizzles out of it. And yet it's his episode. It's his, yeah. this is the Brandt episode. And yet he's just not in there at the end. It's so odd. And I think, what happened? Something's untold here. Something's unclear that something happened behind the scenes, either Culver was ill, or there was a problem with overrunning, or I don't know. Maybe it's a problem with the script and the plot that he can't see Lisa. That's what I was going to suggest, is it not just that? But it's just very odd, yeah. But again, there could be some, you know, conflict or, you know, tension set up there that if that's the case, and they're popping in... I mean, he doesn't really pop into the canteen in series no, one, does no. he? But then that would be interesting if they're like, she's about to walk out from the back room and they're like, Brant's just come in, you, you know, we can't <laughs> see you. Yeah. You've got some tension there, but there's, again, there's no payoff, so... She, she could whip a pair of glasses on, though, couldn't she? <laughs> yeah. Because then that's an immediate disguise, as everyone knows. That pains me so much when Monique is just walking around France in sunglasses. I just... <laughs> we'll never get over that. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. It, it also just there's bits of it which seem which are just unintentionally amusing to me so like inspector mallow just seems to keep he just really wants to be in brant's hotel room and he's just not afraid to come like there's almost uh, unintentional slight homoerotic subtext to it because he's just like so determined to come in and wake brant when he's sleeping or topless I know, it's so funny Ryan picks up on this when we listen to Ryan <laughs> it was one of Ryan's main points because he was astonished by this and I can't believe I didn't pick up on it um, myself but I think it's because I I think as I've always known this episode or well you know for 30 years or whatever so like I'd never really thought about it in that way but I would certainly think I was thinking about it more in that way now and Maybe because I was watching with Ryan, he kept raising his eyebrows. Particularly as um, he was fully uniformed and there was Brad, you know, walking around almost next to naked. Yeah, it was quite odd, wasn't it? You're listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. Ian McCulloch in this episode, 
I think he's pretty good when it starts off. I'm not convinced by his drunk acting later on, where he's had a few, he's had a bit. I didn't even consider that until I saw your show notes. Oh. And was like, oh, was he supposed to be drunk? But then it made sense. I was like, oh, okay, I've just missed that. Yeah. Oh, I see. You, you thought that's maybe just Ian McCulloch's regular acting. I, I think I did. I think I was like, he's, he's grumpy and he's enjoying, you know, having a bit of like, having a go at Brant and he's enjoying having the power in that situation of like, yeah. well, you can't do this without me, so here's my terms. I enjoyed that about the episodes, that re- that dynamic. Well, I, I was going to ask you that. So did you enjoy, were you interested in him as a character and what his motivation was? Because it felt that was very front and centre. It was all about his personality and whether he was going to help Brandt and how much he would help him and therefore how much danger the evaders were in and the smugglers slash evasion guides were in. Were you invested in that? Yes, but perhaps less so for him, but more so for like what it meant for Brandt's character. Yeah. I don't know. I I enjoyed seeing, like normally Brandt is like a very, you know, has more power and is shaping, you know, trying to track down members of Lifeline in Brussels. And so it was really interesting to see his character be out of his comfort zone and not know the local, you know, and not know the environment or the people. And so it was interesting. It it would have been more interesting and relevant to me to have that situation in a later episode rather than sure the fourth episode but i enjoyed that aspect of it yeah but i think you get the sense of when you're watching it that you're never going to see that guy again so you're not really invested in him no and i i don't really understand why brant agrees to the deal he's just like yeah i'll just arrange for all of this money to be paid to you and i'll arra- i won't get the gestapo yeah. involved and i'm like oh these are very generous germans this episode they're just they're insane they're generous terms they're <laughs> insanely generous terms and kessler if he heard about it would have a field day court-martialing brandt for the way he approaches this and this ridiculous behind the scenes deal which makes me think maybe there is something between brandt and mellow that there's something else going on because honestly why would he just give up on everything he's gone all the way down to the south of france which is a long way back then that train it was a long way back difficult. then <laughs> Lots of just, lots, lots of, of jostling, jostling acting on the train, yeah. <laughs> yes, he's tired from all the jostling acting. He arrives in Biarritz or wherever it is. And he's like, oh yeah, let's have this policeman just walk all over me. No, Brandt's stronger than that, surely. What also doesn't make sense is that they don't seem to have a regular German presence there already trying to sabotage Lifeline. Hmm. Yeah. It just seems to be like they can get away with what they want at the south of France. Brandt might pop down on the train, have a look and then go back. <laughs> and and, it, and that doesn't seem very, you know, realistic. Yeah. So we'll come to the historical reality of that situation shortly. But yeah, it's, it's, it's problematic, I think, that Brandt doesn't push harder on that, doesn't just say, well, I could just have you sent to a concentration camp on trumped up charges. Just bloody do what I say, mate. Whatever. I don't know. But then I felt that Ian McCulloch had this effect on people when I was around him, was that he would just state something and then people would run around. But I was already at that point, I'd been working in this bit of context that may be a bit boring, but I'd been working in an Oxford college for quite a few years by that point, And I was fed up of white, older, middle-aged men just declaring things and people running around. And I just didn't respond to that well. So when Ian McCulloch started to do that with me, I, it didn't get him very far. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> what i'm saying is i would have stood up to him i would have stood up to him i would have got the evaders i would have broken the line series the secret army would have been over at the end of episode four 
<laughs> I think they could have added, you know, just made some changes in the script to help make that make more sense. You were saying earlier, you know, that you felt like maybe someone, some cast members were ill or that was why things ended suddenly. Or And then it's strange that there's no Kessler in the beginning. There's another character that comes in to give the intelligence. Yes. Opa Stoff, yes. Which is strange as well, but you could have had, say, Kessler calling Brandt, being like, putting some pressure on him to produce results, and then that might mean that Brandt is making deals that are seemingly nonsensical. Indeed. It's just a strange episode, isn't it? It's just just all a bit out of character. It's strangely conceived. It doesn't have a lot of location filming time. It's not really that important to the regulars. It's... It's kind of a, it's really only purpose is to show the extent of the line, which I think is important. It's important to see, oh, wow, they go all the way down to the south of France. They have to get over the Pyrenees. You know, that. Th- but you know what else could have conveyed that if they'd have had a map <laughs> in the opening titles? Indeed. But I think, I don't know. But there's not enough colour, though. It would have been nice if we'd seen the evaders arrive guided over the mountains. Just a few scenes of them going over the mountains, over the Pyrenees, with a Basque guide. Um, Obviously, they didn't get that far, but maybe, you know, other ones that had just gone over sort of thing. Or, you know, during the, um, the article was the opportunity when it was being recounted to show the Basque guide taking them over the Pyrenees and getting into Spain and all of that had the opportunity to show the extent of the line rather than just in reported speech which was just like oh yeah also upon first watching didn't really get what was happening at the end because I was like they're in a tunnel and then are they trying to get out another end or is there only one exit to the tunnel and then I, I was just a bit confused about what about what they what they were trying to do were they trying to hide and not encounter any germans or like it just didn't really make sense to me i think it's because there was a it's it's quite obvious that the other exit of the tunnel is basically a redress set right of the first one and it's not different enough yeah i'm never sure whether i'm just being really dense or whether there's aspects of the episode that aren't clear but i'm always treading that line (laughs) you've got the situation with baroya played by ken stott who is his he's got that deal with the Crooked Policeman, played by John John Bow. John Bow, by the way, I love. In one of my favourite TV series of the early 90s, Class Act, he's the comedy lead um, opposite Joanna Lumley. Just loved him in that. He's got a tiny part here. But anyway, yeah, he's a crooked policeman. So th- there's that backhander thing going on, and that's why they have to go through the tunnel to pay that guy off. But then it's not clear what's going on. You're right. Even if you're forensically watching this, as we're attempting to do, we're still confused, aren't we? Yes. Although I did enjoy the reveal at the end where they come into the barn and then Inspector Mallow is just like, with the door, just like, I'm here, baby. (laughs) Ta-da! Yeah, I I love a good um, flourish reveal of like, ta-da, boom. (laughs) Push the door aside and I'm here causing problems. Or not. He's just like, if he hates smugglers so much, he's just let that one go. But honestly, the hatred of smugglers was just mad, wasn't it? It was like, I hate them! And I'm like, what, did they kill your child? What happened? What happened to you? Who hurt you? Who hurt you? Who hurt you? Well, we've kind of got that his backstory is that he can't go back to Paris because he'll never round up enough smugglers or do well enough in his current posting to get back to Paris. His backstory isn't clear either. I was like, I've got that something happened and he was posted away from Paris and they've tortured him and that's why he always wears gloves because they removed his fingernails. But that was that for something else that the Gestapo tortured him or not? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
there was stuff that I liked about this episode. I, as always, enjoy scenes with Albert and Monique, and they had some nice moments together. They did. I loved the scene where Albert says, I can't leave her tonight. And Monique just says really sharply, can you ever? And I'm like, oh, yes, that's a thread that will run and run. So, yeah, I like that. That was a good moment. And, as always, I'm going to say this every damned podcast <laughs> episode. They're just both such good actors and all their performances are great. I love it. I know. Even just little moments, they're just, like, yeah. perfect. But in an episode like this, that's problematic because their level is better than the level of... The airmen are terrible in this episode, I think. And the stuff with Malo and Brent is quite boring. So it's almost like a little spark of, oh, yes, yes, we're back at the canteen. This is exciting. Here's what you could have. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You don't get the speedboat. You just get the bully, the plastic bully with the darts in it. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Is it like a the prizes that you can get on... What's that darts TV show? Yes, Bullseye. That's it, yes. We got, we got that. Anyway. I just, just about remember watching that in my childhood. Now, what we must talk about at length, and I'm going to let you kick off with this, is the Chantal sisters. Really like those characters. They're some of my favourite recurring characters. I really like that it's... And again, it's revisiting that theme of found family... You can see how much they love to dote on the airmen and get to know them. And I really like their contrasting personalities. And yeah, I think both uh, the actresses who play them do a great job. Yeah. Um, it was funny because they were, I watched recently on YouTube The Girls of Slender Means, which is something I've always wanted to see, which stars Mary Tam and Miriam Margolis. Miriam Margolis is the lead when she's young. And it's really interesting. It's set after the... Second World War, I think, in the early, in the late 40s. And it's all about breaking out, but they've got, they're, they're living in this austere hostel. Well, they didn't have any money, but the hostel's quite bright and fun, actually. But there are two characters in that series uh, who are old spinsters who hate each other and they just bicker all the time. If one person says one thing, the other person says the other. And it's very like that, that vibe. But the question I had for you, are they actually sisters or are they lesbians? A good question. In my headcanon... I do like to think that they are together. Yeah. And then they have to pretend to be sisters yeah. in order for it to be kind of socially acceptable. I don't think that is what the series is hinting at, though. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just felt because there is that dynamic, there's a dynamic that I was thinking, yeah, I can see them together. Yeah. And in the way, so like in my life from the age of one to 16, <laughs> it was all under section 28. So you just didn't have any representation, nothing on screen, nothing in school, etc. So I'm really used to just reading things into things because that for a long time that was all you could do. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And so, yeah, in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I really, you know, that would make sense to me. I'm reading it that way. But I, I don't think that was the writer's intention. My question is to you is, would these characters have been the creation of Arden Winch or would they have been like pre-written in the way that Jacques Ball had such a detailed background. <laughs> so they're actually running characters. So they're in the original, one of the earliest production documents detailing the characters that would be in the series. So they were created by Jerry Glaster slash John Brayson. Then it was up to the writers to decide, oh, I like the idea of that character. We can include that in that storyline. So yeah, they could pick the ones they wanted to include. So yeah. Oh, I like that. What is your reading of it? I think the same as you. Yeah, I do. But... There's no way they would speak of that. And they, they they probably wouldn't even speak of it themselves because it would be sort of so clandestine then. 
I don't know, but... I really enjoy their banter throughout the series. So in this one, we went to Eastbourne, I loved Eastbourne, and then I forget which one's which, but then the other one is just like, always hated that place. <laughs> like, they just have such a good delivery, yeah. don't they, between them. They're, they're great. And, and Madeline loves the, loves the seed cake yeah. she makes, and the other one's like, no, I don't like it. And it's like, it's great. It's nice to have that. There's no need for it to be that detailed and nuanced, but it is. And that's that's great that they suddenly turn up brighten the episode and particularly because it gives that real sucker punch moment which i think is like probably one of my pros i don't know i think it is i think you did put that down yes so can i go to my moment of the week andy's moment of the week it's the way lisa cuts through madeline's sentimentality about the the man and she just has this wonderful acting with the with the um, really reminded me of vanessa redgrave actually in howard's end where she lifted the wooden spoon to her mouth to talk about the man with a gap between his teeth and she does it in such a lovely way the actor the actor and um, it's such a shame we're not with them for longer now i've really got to know the one with the curly hair and the gap in his teeth and i wonder what happened to them and lisa just said he was shot and it was so cut through the naivety it reminded the viewer and madeline that this was war this is real can't afford to be sentimental real lives are at stake here and i thought that was a really easily the best moment in the episode so i was just doing a bit of reading on um Tant go which we'll get on to who we'll get on to later but i just found a bit that i had underlined in the book so this is little cyclone by airy neve and page 82 so it says uh, in two days nearly 100 people all helpers of the line were arrested some were guides some shelterers some innocent relatives thrown into prison as hostages of these many would never see their homes again such was the price paid by the comet line for their return of 60 airmen in the past six months and it just really yeah. brought home to me, you know, the risks and the dangers of it. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're a brilliant part of the episode. It's over too quick. I can imagine Victor's Rotellis loving them. And in fact, he definitely is the director for their episode in series three. I forget which episode they're in in series two, but he definitely directs their series three episode as well. Yeah, especially because there's somewhere one pops up without the other. Oh, well, of course, um, they're in um, Little Old Lady, aren't they? So is that Vic Vitalis? Oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> I'm, a- I'm answering the question incorrectly. <laughs> You're like, that's not what I'm asking, AJ. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so keen to name an episode they were in, I ignored your actual question. <laughs> no, no, that's OK. I think it's a Terence Dudley episode. Yeah, it is a Terence Dudley episode. And AJ gets nil point. <laughs> <laughs> That's appropriate. You're in France in this episode. Yes. Um, yeah, so I think Victor's Retellus, I remember now, telling me that he cast them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. So Ruth Gower and ooh, Mary Barclay. Yeah, he cast them. I like the, the knowledge of these actors, but I'm guessing they would have been, you know, working for a long time, maybe well known to people when they were cast. Would people see this episode and go, oh, it's her? I think they were kind of like established character actors. You know, and I imagine Vic had used them before, but I don't know for definite. But yes, I think he was very much like, yeah, he loved them. I remember him saying he really loved them as as women and actors. Yeah. Before we go any further, we've got a few more pros we want to cover. But should we listen to what Ryan thought of the episode? Yes. <laughs> because um, I think we probably want to respond to some of his comments. Ooh. Okay, so we've just watched Child's Play. Mm-hmm. What did you make of it? Oh, there was a lot of information, unnecessary information in there. 
I think when the guy was telling them all the escapees, like when they got out of the van, my brain just went, and we're done. <laughs> yeah, you were like, why do we have to hear the details? Because <laughs> that, in terms of scripting, what was it you said about that, how it could have been easily dealt with? Oh, you could have just said, now don't forget what I've just told you, and then moved on. There's shortcuts that weren't taken. Yeah. Anything else? The raw sexual tension of the policeman officer and the. And Brandt. Yes. Tell me more. Way too much. Well, it started with him in his very silky dressing gown. Yeah. And then you've got a very well-stocked drinks cabinet. They feel like they just were coming up with excuses to talk to one another. <laughs> That's the only excuse for the, those scenes to be going on for so long. Yeah, there was quite a lot of bare-chested Brandt in this episode. I don't know. But then I think he also just did that so he could have a nice South of France holiday as well. Yeah, you felt that was his motivation, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Any other scene that struck you? Any moment or character? I can't remember her name, but the woman that works in the cafe. Monique. She's getting way too much flack for being the air quotes mistress. Yeah. And obviously the guy is getting nothing whatsoever. How about, yeah. yeah. Well, he's the man, it's okay, isn't it? Yeah. So overall... Well, you warned me that it wasn't a great episode, but I don't think it was as bad as I was expecting it. Okay. That probably helped, but I don't know how high the highs are going to be for that to be the low, so if that's not too bad. Well, thank you for suffering child play with me. <laughs> jet-lagged, nonetheless. Yeah, that, that's the problem, isn't it? We're also jet-lagged. <laughs> okay, thank you, Ryan. You, at this point, you just let your poor partner just... He's really tired. I know, exactly. I think, again, his comments yeah. just illustrate points that we've made, which is you're at the fourth episode and he still can't name the main characters. And it just shows that they're not spending enough time establishing those characters, establishing life at the Condide. But, yeah, I really liked his point that, yeah, the woman gets the flag, is judged, Albert isn't judged. Yeah, absolutely. And also the idea that Brent is just on a jolly. He actually thought he'd just go down to the south of France, get away from Brussels for a bit. Sit on his balcony eating cheese and grape. I would do. If I had to work with Kessler, I'd be like, oh, look at that. I've got to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not desperate to spend more time with Kessler, are you? Not if he's going to give you stick all the time for just doing yeah. your job. But it's not all bad. We're going to move on to some more pros. We've already said we like the Chantal sisters. What else did we like in the episode? Well, we've already said that we like the scene with Albert and Monique. One of, I'll go to my AJ's moment of the week. <laughs> I really loved they're trying to kick the customer out at the beginning and Monique eventually just starts, you know, hitting his feet with a broom by the looks of it and shoving the chair around, pretending to be sweeping. I just love how this guy is having none of it. He's like, stands up and they're like, oh, we've got him now. He's going to go now. Moves to the next chair. (laughs) That guy is the king of passive aggressiveness. Well done, mister. And I loved how they're then like, one hour, one beer, you've got to go. And then he's like, give my regards. This I didn't even notice this until, you know, after a few rewatches. Yeah. The customer stands up and goes, give my regards to your wife. Both of them. I was like, oh. <laughs> People are sending each other to the hospital with burns in this episode. <laughs> they really are. Most importantly, Louise. Though Louise has a really good scene, doesn't she? Delivering third degree burns to Monique. <laughs> With style as well, she's like, Andre seems very depressed. Perhaps Albert should devote more time to her and less to (laughs) other things. It makes me feel really sad for Andre that literally everybody in Brussels knows. Yeah. Well, I think she herself knows. She's just in denial, isn't she? But yeah, not great. Anyway, 
Yeah, but then she goes on oh, to do this most brilliant thing. So Gaston sort of thinks, right, I've got her here. I love her, but I'm going to tell her how it's at. Would you rather that I just ignore our country's suffering and the invading barbarians? And she calls him on it. She's like, yes, I bloody would. <laughs> She's not being naive. She actually says, no, actually, I want to live. I want you to live. I want Lisa to live. We've already lost Lisa's parents and her boyfriend. I think we should stop doing this. And I don't care if the country's overrun. We'll still be alive. And I just love how this is a strong survival instinct kick cutting in. It's it's really clear and it's practical in a in a very different clear and practical way to the, the ways of, of Lifeline. But I love that she just like completely confounds him by... Because the easy writing would have been to, for her to say... Oh, yes, you've got a point. This is important work. I do understand. But she doesn't. She's like, nah, not happy. <laughs> I'm sticking to my guns. Which has always been the strength of Secret Army. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was my highlight. Although perhaps a little bit of, like, over-foreshadowing. Like, all right, something's going to happen to him. We get it. <laughs> yeah, it's like exactly. the third episode. And it's a lot. Out of four, where you're worried about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We do know that it's not going to go well. You are listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. I think it's essential that we move into some historical reality. So, as we know, Secret Army, wherever possible, tried to ground its episodes in real historical moments or um, characters. And this is no exception. Although, it's kind of more generally background stuff. This episode, rather than having any characters that are actually, you know, based on real people. So there's two people I wanted to talk about. One was Elvira de Grief, or Tante Go, and the other is Fiorentino Goikakia. I don't know how to say his name. Are we not going with the French pronunciation of auntie? Tante Go? Yes, sorry, that's just me being bad. So Tante, yes, good. Auntie, Auntie Go. Do you want to talk about Auntie Go? Uh, alias came from a beloved pet who I think passed away and the pet was called Go-Go. So, hence, Tante Go. Yeah. So, Elvira de Grief, whose codename was Tante Go, was originally from Brussels and then after the German invasion she went all the way down to Spain to escape with her family, her husband and two children. And it was from there that she became one of the most important members of the Comet line who helped the evaders once they were sent down the line to get over the Pyrenees into Spain and the first few times when they got evaders down there they just kind of sent them over the mountains and kind of hoped and forced their fingers and then they discovered that they were being arrested at the other end in Spain and that that wasn't good enough so they started to properly handhold them they took them over the Pyrenees and then took them by hand to the British consulate in Bilbao so that they actually were definitely definitely going to freedom and protection so yeah so it was a massive undertaking hugely dangerous but because they already had this massive smuggling operation going on across the Pyrenees it was ideal perfect fit this dovetailing of the Basque smuggler with the practice of evasion and they were happening at the same time and the most famous of the Basque guides being Fiorentino who um, essentially is one of Inspector Malo's hated smugglers. Um, yeah. Can I add a little bit more detail? That whole family is just absolutely amazing. Um, so she did a lot of black market smuggling and 
dealing of goods. And then that was a, a good way to get food for the airmen that they were looking after. But it also helped them do other activities or Germans to overlook other dealings that they might be doing because they could kind of bribe them with some black market goods or, mm. you know, get them to kind of look the other way. Her husband, um, who uh, fittingly got the codename of uncle, worked as a translator in German offices. So he was able to get, you know, official documents and things and they were able to then pass those up the line so that when people were uh, needing their right vaccination certificates, <laughs> they were able to um, have authentic documents. And then the, the children were 17 and 18 and they were, you know, doing this really dangerous work as well. And yeah. eventually I think they had to go down the line. Well, not that they had far to go, but go down, mm. go over the Pyrenees themselves to safety before the war's end. Um, but the children were called um, Freddy. And I'm sure there's a French pronunciation um, that makes it sound less English, but Janine, <laughs> Freddy and Janine. <laughs> yeah, Janine. I think she's also kind of Janine in a French way, J-E-A-N-I-N-E. Yes. Janine. But, yeah. So yeah, what a family. But they went back to Belgium. They went back to Brussels ah. in the end to live. Yes. So they all were in Brussels in the end and once it was not occupied anymore. Um, it's also worth mentioning, um, time to go, um, Ilfira de Grief, because it's my contention, having read just this tiny section from a book you just have next to you, Little Cyclone, that um, she was also the inspiration partly for Monique because there's one sentence where she he says that um, she was a strong and vital character who looked at the most 35 and showed her finest qualities when facing bitter disaster. And I just thought, that's Monique for me. She's just like, yeah, she's on it in that moment. And I don't know whether she was a direct um, inspiration, but I felt that was very Monique, that description. They also, in Little Cyclone, there's also um, an amazing story of kind of truth being stranger than fiction, which is about the workaround they had for document checks at the train station in Bayonne, Bayonne where they had a key to a door that led between the cafe toilets and the station terminal. <laughs> so they could bypass the document checks by coming, getting off the train, having yeah. a coffee, <laughs> pretending to use the restroom and then just going out onto the onto, into the train station which uh, was brilliant although sadly um, yeah. it, it didn't last because another group got the key to the door and Sandy got caught using it so that was the end of that but um, I always enjoy those stories where you, in a way you can't put them in the show because they, they wouldn't sound authentic would they? Like if you put that in it would seem no, like indeed. A, a parody or something farcical but. Yeah. So I just want to go on to talk about Fiorentino who Bill Randall remembers in his autobiography a tough, strong-looking character with a deeply lined, sunburnt face. He was suitably dressed in shepherd's clothes, a light sheepskin jacket over greasy denim overalls, rope sandals on his feet, and a wine sack over his shoulder. Um, another evader described him as tougher than any man he had ever come across, his huge body fortified by years of goat's cheese, rough red wine, and cognac. And uh, shaking his hand was like putting your fingers in a car crusher. The reason why I wanted to specifically mention him is that there was one point that he was rescued um, having been shot and he was in a hospital and members of the Comet line rescued him in an ambulance by posing as hospital personnel. So that was the um, genesis of the trapped storyline. So originally it wasn't, well obviously it wasn't Monique being rescued, but you know. This was this was the genesis of that story. 
And he was still around in 1977, and Bill Randall, I think, the BBC, I think, paid, or Radio Times paid for him to go out and meet Fiorentino again. And he was a shadow of his former self, but still proud of the work he'd done for the Evasion Lines. The sad thing is that that stopped him being more active and going up into the Pyrenees in the future, which is really sad when... That's been, you know, where you've spent so much of your life and you know it so well and you love it. And Yeah. And I think just talking about Elvira and Fiorentino, this is one of the reasons why um, I love this series because it's it's encouraged me to go and find out the real stories and read around and books like Little Cyclone, which I think is it's a description of Dee Dee, isn't it? Yes. Because she's just such a powerhouse, yeah. And, yeah, it's just the fact that it's actually giving light, shed, um, casting light on these important people who helped who helped an obviously terrible situation be overturned and saved so many lives it's just a brilliant thing that they did and ridiculously brave and there's so many people um that we won't know the names of these are the the most well-known people in the line or but there's you know hundreds and hundreds that we'll we'll never know who was who was so brave and you can just keep reading and reading and reading. Another good book is The Freedom Line by Peter Eisner. Yeah. So I recommend, recommend that too. But yeah, there's some other stories of incredible rescues from hospital beds as well um, that I'll mention more mm. in Trapped when we get to Trapped. But yeah, there's some of like rescuing pregnant women by, I think, pretending they're about to give birth and things like that. So, um, yeah. So that's what we thought of Child's Play. But what did our listeners think? Yes, so uh, we've had some wonderful responses from people. So I will start with Alex Wilcock. Alex says, Showing more of the escape line itself seems like a logical idea, yet it feels off-kilter so early to step away from the claustrophobic tension of Brussels. It's almost a glimpse into an alternate secret army as an anthology series. Yeah, let me just come to that. That's such a clever point, Alex, and I totally agree. But it's a, it's a terrible fear of mine because in the mid-70s there was all these anthology series that don't really knit together and aren't cohesive and it could easily have become that sort of series and I'm so glad it didn't. What else did Alex say? Yeah, Alex also said that Brant and Lisa both shine as one gets to humanise a little, the other harden. Oh, oh Alex yeah, is so good. good, isn't he? We want to get Alex on the show. Yeah. So do the guests, Cynical McCulloch, the scene stealing old pain at the Candide, the delightful old ladies, and Ken Stott, who Alex wonders, did he ever look young? <laughs> <laughs> and then Alex finishes by saying, but the peril of rankings is that all the others in season one are better. <laughs> <laughs> he does also say it's a good episode, doesn't he? Yes, yes. Yeah, so now we, we've our view of Alex's opinion has just plummeted. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> so we also heard from Nick Heald, who said, just watched it a couple of weeks ago, I'm working my way through the lot, and enjoyed it. I like the whodunit feel with Brant and the French policeman, Greg from Survivors, trying to figure out the escape route. So that was his take on it. And I love that we've got that variety um, of opinion there, that we've got someone who knows the show very, very well and someone who's kind of watching it through again, yeah. bit by bit. I like yeah. it. It's good. It just shows that people are still re-watching and discovering <laughs> <laughs> Secret Army. Yeah. So we also had Dave Kitchen, or David Kitchen. I'm glad it did something different here, and it's interesting to watch and breaks up the series, but I feel it was a real missed opportunity to explore what was happening in southern France at this time. Good, but short of great. McCulloch was not good. Oh. 
I'd agree when it came to the drunk acting. Anyway, it's so lovely that people are still help sending us reviews when you consider that they haven't heard of any of this podcast yet. Thank you. Please keep... Oh, I, I, there's no point in saying it now, is there? Because it'll be out by then. They won't hear it. Yeah, yeah. But we can say that we are grateful for their contributions. Yes. It brings us joy. They bring their points that we might have missed or their wisdom to the show. Although I, w- I would say... It'd be really lovely if we could hear from um, some women reviewers as well. Yes, I um, I think they're just missing our call-outs. Yeah. So I'll have to remedy that going forward, so make sure everyone hears. Yes. Okay. That's it from us today. When this episode draws to a close, you're going to hear some more sound bites from other fans of Secret Army who share what they love about the show and their memories of watching it and what it means to them. If you would like to share your thoughts about this episode, about our podcast in general, or contribute to the sound bites at the end of episodes, you can get in touch on Twitter at Secret Army Pod or by email at secretarmypod at gmail.com. We record our episodes in advance, but keep an eye out on Twitter for call to share your views on each individual episode, and please keep sending those in. We're very grateful. So we can't wait to join you next time when we go down the line again, when we look at episode five, which is entitled Second Chance, in which, in my opinion, Secret Army proper begins. I have been Andy. And I have been AJ. Bye. Bye. My name's Julian. I've been watching Secret Army on and off for about, my goodness, must be about since the early 2000s, really. As we've been saying, it's been all about kind of like coming together on the Twitter for the rewatch through talking pictures and everyone sort of coming together through that forum, really. It's because of the alumni of like all the people in it. You'll see on their CV, oh, was in Doctor Who, was in Blake Seven, was in, you know, Shakespeare, was in Secret Army. A couple of times in early cable, the uh, experiences you, you it would be on and i think i saw an episode from series one because it had the first candide set in there and uh it really i thought oh, that, that there's a real seriousness to this what's this and then when uk tv gold started resharing it in the early and mid 2000s in the doctor who slot uh, and blake seven slot in the mornings that's when i, I saw it and i think i only just Pure chance, I only ever saw it from series two and three. So I didn't really see series one very much. But yeah, so, uh, and it absolutely gripped me. And I, uh, whenever it was on, I made sure I'd, I'd, I'd try and catch it in the mornings at the weekend. But especially as, as series two becomes so gripping and then into three, you, you can't really miss an episode. Uh, you know, I said, okay, let's continue with this. Yeah, two episodes in the morning. So it, it galloped through the series relatively quickly on a Saturday and a Sunday. Yeah, I, I'm really thankful for um, Talking Pictures TV doing what it's doing because from a historical point of view as well, not just in TV, but in, in real history, it's really, I'd never heard of the evasion lines in Belgium. I'd never heard of, you know, so many things that I encountered through Secret Army. So it is an important series, I think, for the 70s. And it, it should be out there. It's got a seriousness about it. A no-holds-barred approach to the character. There's, there's no sentimentality approach to the characters. And it's such a beautifully scripted series that every single character gets a third and a fourth dimension. If you want a really dramatic series, 
that brings you in, that makes you feel for these characters and then puts them through the mill. And then you sh you say, you know, shows you all of the grey elements of them. In my start in lockdown, actually. And then, uh, yeah, it, it, it began and then a couple more people have joined and more people joined. And then by the end of it, there was like, there was a good like 15 or so people tweeting on a on a weekly basis. I mean, people who had more knowledge of the history of the arms than I have, would say, you know, it's, uh, you know, it was really fascinating to people going, oh, that's based on such and such a thing from history. That's like got based in reality. So, yeah, it was a really interesting, um, really interesting experience. And, and everyone stuck with it right through to the end. Thank you for listening to Down the Line. Andy and AJ will be back with another episode in two weeks' time.